Consult is a monthly podcast about software developers who work on Apple platforms to create client products. Join us each month as we talk business, Swift, Objective-C, contracts, App Store, and all things Apple. I'm your host, David Kopeck. Hi, everyone. Welcome to episode 19 of Consult. So happy to be with you again. I have a great interview with Matt Gallagher, Australian consultant and popular for his blog, Coco with Love, which I think most of you have probably read. Very successful and popular in the iOS community. I also want to remind you about my upcoming book, Classic Computer Science Problems in Swift, coming out November 2017 from Manning. You can get it now in an early access version from manning.com. Use promo code PCCOPEC, that's P-C-K-O-P-E-C, to get 50% off the sticker price. That's a special rate for my listeners. And this is a great book for interview prep. You're going to learn search algorithms, graph algorithms, machine learning, and so much more. And even if you haven't done this stuff before, we walk you through it in a tutorial fashion. If you have done this stuff before, it's a great refresher. It's also great for students. Check out the book, Class Computer Science Problems in Swift. But without further ado, let's get to our interview with Matt Gallagher. So my guest today is Matt Gallagher. Now, if you don't think you know him, you probably do, because he runs an incredibly popular Coco blog called Coco with Love. Matt, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. So, Matt, take us back. How did you first get into computing? Into computing? Yeah, way uh, back. Yeah. Uh, my dad bought a an NEC8201A. It was this little laptop thing roughly the size of a keyboard with a little strip of a screen across the top. And I just started entering computer programs in BASIC into that from books, which was, you know, sort of how it was done at the time. There was no internet. So you got small games uh, in a book and you just typed them in. And I really couldn't tell uh, when... It stopped being me just mindlessly typing and when I actually started understanding what I was typing in. But, you know, I was, this was sort of 1985 and I was about six or seven years old. Very cool. Very cool. Um, when did you know you wanted this to be your profession? That's a harder question. <laughs> I think in retrospect, I should have known a lot earlier, but, uh, you know, I went through high school and I studied engineering at university and I thought I was going to be, uh, you know, an electrical engineer or a control systems engineer. And uh, I also was studying computer science at the same time, a um, bit of a double major. I just kind of realized as, as I was finishing up the computer science, because I finished all of that work first, that I missed it and really... I enjoyed my time at university doing that more than engineering. So it was a kind of realization that I'd been a bit misguided for a while on it. And I should have been, uh, you know, focusing on being a programmer or a software engineer. Sure. So how did you get involved in the Mac and iOS world? You know, we, uh, we had a Mac 2 CI in the 90s. I did a lot of sort of hobby programming on that, but it wasn't... I, I, not prof I didn't do anything professionally on the Mac until I left another job 
uh, uh, without a plan. You know, I was just sort of unhappy with a job that I was doing. I left it without any idea of what I was going to do. You know, what I had at home was a Mac, so I started writing a hobby project, and I haven't had a real job since. Wow, wow. Uh, so you were w- on the iPhone from the very beginning. I remember reading blog posts on Coco with Love going all the way back to, I think it was like the 2008-2009 era. Um, how yeah. did the blog get started? So this was when I was just sort of trying to get hobby projects off the ground. Um, at that point, none of them really did, and I actually was sort of supplementing my income by doing small contracts for people with uh, things as weird as writing embedded C for barcode readers. You know, I was inspired by other bloggers at the time. Theo Cacao, if you remember that website. Scott Stevenson. Mm -hmm. Um, And I sort of, I loved the stuff he was doing. He, He doesn't write as much anymore. I sort of loved the idea of reaching out to people. It hadn't quite occurred to me that you could just sit down and write. And, you know, I, I gave it a shot. And what do you attribute the immense popularity of Coco with Love to? I mean, like you say, there's a lot of it, and I've been doing it for a while. These are two things that sort of hard to find in a blog. I think people sit down and they write seven or eight articles and they um, lose a bit of stamina. Mm-hmm. I've done that myself. I mean, there are. I, I look at it and I, I can see areas where I was really just stuff was flowing out of me and other areas where I had nothing to say and I was sort of spinning my wheels a little bit. Yeah, I, I think it's just because it's been there for so long, it's had a little bit for everyone over time, I think. I think you're very modest. I think it's also very well written. Um, but going back, how did you first get into consulting? Well... <laughs> Sort of depends what you mean by consulting. <laughs> Let's say doing contract I've, work in the uh, iOS and Mac world. Yeah, so in the iOS and Mac world, I didn't actually do any paid projects there until after the iPhone came out. Okay. Um, I'd been doing other consulting work, like I said, mostly embedded projects and little things inside other people's um, hardware. But when the iPhone came out, there was just a huge opportunity. Um, the Cocoa Heads meetings uh, started in Melbourne, where I live, in 2008. And I went along to one of those, and somebody said, oh, you've got a blog, Cocoa with Love. Um, do you do consulting work? And I said, yes, like <laughs> I did it all the time. Um, and I did a project for somebody uh, that week and uh, haven't really stopped. What's the consulting scene and the iOS scene more generally like in Australia? A lot of our listeners are in the US or Europe and they might not be as familiar with the Australian market. So what is the iOS um, developer community like in Australia? It varies from city to city. Melbourne actually has one of the biggest communities. So uh, the Cocoa Heads meetups here, which are every month, it's, you know, a hundred or more people show up to every meeting and wow. it's, you know, very positive and it's a, it's a good group of friends and people have been literally going to these meetings for 10 years now. Wow. Um, so it's, it's been uh, sort of enthusiastic and happy, but that sort of hundred people doesn't necessarily reflect the entire size of the dev community. There's probably thousands of, in fact, maybe even tens of thousands of independent Mac and iOS developers in Melbourne. Um, these are just the the hundred that show up to a Cocoa Heads are just 
you know, those who chose to do it that month or those who are feeling particularly social. But I think that sort of provides a window into the, I guess, the iceberg underneath, um, you know, little bit of iceberg on top and large bit underneath. I think most large cities around the world are going to have these sorts of meetups. I was speaking with uh, Julio Corretto, who's uh, an independent developer in Buenos Aires. Mm-hmm. And he was telling me about the meeting meetups they have there. And, um, you know, as different as Argentina and Australia are, it doesn't sound like the mechanics of showing up to a meeting, telling another business that you're available for work and doing work is a whole lot different. Sure. Yeah, that makes absolute sense. Are most of your consulting clients in Australia or are they scattered around the world? A little bit of both. Where possible, I tend to choose Australian clients just because it's a lot simpler to manage. You've just got one set of rules governing um, both ends of the contract. I have done a lot of work for people overseas, though, and some of my biggest contracts have just been for people in the US who, you know, it, it tends to work out better when people are choosing you rather than they're just looking for someone to fill the job. Sure. So I occasionally get large customers from the US saying, Matt, we've seen this on your blog or we've seen this project you have on GitHub and we want you to adapt it for our project. So I get a lot of that work. Do you find that Australian clients are specifically looking for someone local? Yes. Yeah, it tends to be that companies would prefer to have someone that they can bring into the office on a regular basis. I think that's I think that's sort of standard uh, human nature, which is that sure. you relate more to someone you can see face-to-face. And you can bring someone in on a plane, but that's harder to do, and you're not going to have that as often. Over the years, have you found differences in Australian business culture versus American business culture in terms of interactions with clients? Not really. I think there's a much bigger difference between big companies and small companies. I think, you know, a lot of the work I do is for people who are essentially just my friends in the uh, local community. So you walk in, they already know who you are, you already know who they are, and you're just coming in to um, help them out on a project that's going to last a couple of months, and it's uh, easy enough to do. When you're working for a big company and you have to go through procurement people and you have to go through uh, layers of contracts and um, the people who initially hire you aren't the people you'll be working with and you get this rotating carousel of faces in the company and you have no idea who who they all are. That's always the hardest experience. You just kind of put your head down and try and do your work. Talking about... um dealing with small clients versus large clients, do you tend to put together a team or is it mostly you working solo? I I basically work solo. I'm normally brought in as a programming specialist within a larger programming team. Um, So I'm not normally in charge of the other aspects of the project. Do you like working solo or have you ever had the interest in building out a team? It's always been one of those things where I've thought, you know, maybe I could. It would require some sort of restructuring and rethinking on my part. It's a bit difficult, though, when for, certainly for projects where you're being hired by someone else, you, you don't normally get to choose. I have done a couple projects where it's been myself and someone else accepting a contract from a larger company, but uh, I've that just tends to be rarer. I think people are just 
they look to fill out a team. They put out uh, uh, advertisements for short-term contracts, and it tends to just be they're looking for um, someone to fill a seat, really. I have wanted, because I don't just work for other people. I also maintain my own projects. For a while, I thought I was going to be able to sort of scale up a business just doing that. I have a product called Stream to Me, which mm-hmm. is a streaming video client for iOS devices. For a while, about five years ago, it was very successful and it looked like I should uh, scale up the business, hire a couple other people to do support and design and other bits. But, you know, the business changed and it never happened. I never got around to it. So, yes, I would like to have a larger company just because it would mean I don't have to handle all aspects of my business, which is a pain come tax time and uh, when you're dealing with other when you're dealing with support emails, but you'd rather be developing or vice versa. But, uh, you know, it's sort of on that front, it is what it is. <laughs> That's a good segue to talk about ZQ. So ZQ is your company that produces Stream to Me. What was the impetus for starting that product? The impetus for the product was fairly simple. Um, my TV and uh, my computer were a long way from each other, and uh, I had content on my computer I wanted to play on the TV. Uh, this was sort of 2009 when uh, the Apple TV didn't exist, and or or if it did exist, it wasn't it wasn't really a box for doing that sort of thing. Certainly not with content outside of iTunes. Yeah, there weren't a lot of good ways of doing it, and the iPhone had a, a little cable where you could plug things in. So I just figured I'd work out a pipeline for streaming from my computer to my phone. So I originally wrote the whole product just for me. It was horrible, but it only took a couple of days to do the first version. You know, a, a few people downloaded, and I thought, all right, I'll, I'll put out version 2, which was the first version that would actually let you freely seek around in files, because to that point, it just played a file start to finish, and that was it. You know, I added support for subtitles and thumbnails and other things people might expect. And version 2 was incredibly successful. I didn't quite... Uh, I never quite understood where people were even discovering about it. And, uh, <laughs> so you just, didn't do a big marketing push? I did almost nothing. I mentioned, the only thing I ever actually did was I mentioned that the iPad version, when it first came out, was available on my blog. Okay. Uh, I did almost a year's worth of business in the first week the iPad came out. Wow, okay. Um, that was, it was a very strange experience for me. <laughs> Okay. So, you, do you think the blog post actually had a big impact or do you attribute it to just the, I guess, the gold rush of the early app store? Yeah, I think there was there were a few things going on. So, Ars Technica mentioned it in their article on apps you can get for your iPad now that it's come out. And, oh, cool. Uh, I think, though, most of it was, yeah, people's attitude towards the app store when... Uh, in in that era of 2008 through about 2011, people appeared, as far as I could tell, every time they bought a new iOS device, just bought a huge number of new apps. Hmm. And I could see this in my sales. Every time a new device was released, sales would tick up, and then they'd fall back off again. And then a new device would come out, and they'd tick back up again. Hmm. And you could see... You could see the iPad tick and the uh, iPhone tick because they were at different times of the year back then. Um, it was strange. And I think just 
you know, people have stopped needing to do that. They've got the iOS devices they bought for their previous devices now. Sure. Sorry, what did I say? You said the <laughs> iOS apps they bought yes, for their previous apps. devices. So, you know, that that era has changed. And more than that, I mean, with Stream to Me, people have changed how they're consuming video now. People are streaming from online services. They're not uh, uh, building up as much of a library on their own computers, I think, anymore. Right. That makes perfect sense. So you mentioned that the blog might have had some effect on Stream to Me, probably not a huge effect, but you also mentioned that it's had some effect on bringing consulting clients to you. So yes. if you had to estimate, um, what percentage would you say of your consulting clients come in because they heard about you through Coco with Love? Well, I think at this point, literally all of them have heard of Coco with Love. Mm-hmm. Whether or not that's the deciding factor for them, I, d- I couldn't tell you. Um, particularly for people I meet at developer meetups or other through other contacts here in Melbourne, you know, I know them for um, face-to-face reasons that they also know about Coco with Love. I mean, I'm sure it's a factor. I'm sure it helps, particularly because they can say, oh, look, he's got a portfolio of work. He's been doing this for quite some time. He's not just a pretender. And there's always that risk when you're hiring new people in consulting that you don't know if they're a complete fraud. I have a body of work up. People can glance at. Yeah. Whatever issues I might have, uh, it's not the inability to, you know, slowly put out code and write. That that makes a lot of sense. So, tell us about a project that, and we don't have to name names, that was particularly challenging for you over the years. So, a consulting project that might have started well and then something went south. And what were the challenges you ran into and how did it end up being resolved? I mean, I've been on projects that have been canceled. (laughs) Mm Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's a strange experience when nothing you do has gone wrong and people have just said, we're canning it, go home. <laughs> okay. I worked on some computer vision projects. This might seem a little out of left field. It's not <laughs> what you'd normally expect. But uh, I worked on a computer vision project and they were basically implementing a research paper that they'd picked up. Mm-hmm. But they wanted to change the conditions of the research paper. The actual research paper used something called structured light, which projects a shape onto people, and then the camera reads that shape back off the surface. Hmm. They wanted to do it without the structured light, and rather than being close-ups of people's faces, they wanted to do it of a person in a room. And I, I never... <laughs> I tried multiple times to communicate that this wasn't going to work, that changing the conditions of it like that was just an uphill battle. And uh, um, I'm not totally convinced we ever saw eye to eye on that. I had a six-month contract Mm -hmm. that was expected to be renewed at the end of it, and uh, we both kind of decided not to renew it at the end of that. That was one of the most painful projects I ever worked on because I don't think uh, I don't think the challenges were ever totally communicated. Um, they wanted to write me off as just being difficult, the new guy on the project, mm-hmm. and I sincerely didn't think they were going to be able to make it work the way they were trying, hmm. and. You know, seven years later, they eventually put out that project, but everything, as far as I could tell, had changed. So, I'm not 
it's hard to know if I was right or if I was just being difficult. It's very hard when you go onto a research project that can fail for reasons beyond your programming skill. There's also the technology and the principles involved. Sure. Um, that was that was a tough one. I I felt uh, unhappy for a lot of that project. That's very interesting. When the project started, did you express these concerns about the algorithm not being able to be modified in that way um, before you even got started? No, I didn't have. I mean, I've done a bit of. I had done a bit of computer vision work before that, but I. I had never worked on this specific exercise, and I has I, I guess erroneously assumed that they'd done a bit of legwork, and um, you know they had picked this paper. They were showing me this paper and saying we're making these changes to it, and this is how it's going to work. And I just kind of went, okay, uh huh. Um, because I so guess- it was it was a few weeks on the project, maybe even a month on the project before I realized what I was. You know, involved with. Hmm. Hmm. Uh, tell us about the opposite. Tell us about a project that was particularly gratifying. Again, we don't need to name any names, but what was so special about it, and how did it impact your career? I mean, I've I've mentioned Stream to me, which it was just gratifying because it was my own project and was actually really successful for a while, which is always nice. But I think the projects that are really gratifying aren't necessarily big in my career but they're just things where as as an independent developer people come up to you and they say I want to get this project done it's it's just something small it's just something little and quick and you'll just put it out there and it'll just work mm-hmm. and that absolutely never happens <laughs> it's never small it you never just write it you never just put it out there it never just works I had a client come up to me on one project and they said it's a small little thing. Um, It was combining uh, US weather information with something else to provide a a cute little mashup of weather services and advertising for a particular product. Mm Mm-hmm. And it was exactly as simple and easy as advertised. I just pulled a feed, joined it up with, you know, their little uh, joke pictures and information. I I had the whole app written in about four days. Um, I've I it was so satisfying because the whole app, start to finish, worked as simply as they said. I just put it up there, and it was on the app store for about five years. It was fantastic. Wow. Wow, that's awesome. Um, I've I've never had anything as simple before or since. Um, what are your so satisfying for me is you know on time on budget. That seems like such a penny pinching thing to say, but <laughs> no, no. I mean that's kind of rare in in this world. Um, so, what are your long term goals as a consultant? Do you want to keep working in a similar manner to you are now, or do you have some some targets you want to hit over the next few years? You know, I've been thinking about this. I, I'm not a hundred percent sure. As a consultant, you always have uh, a few things you're trying, a couple of jobs you'd like to get, um, maybe a couple of projects you're working on on your own. It's always this mix of things that could pan out and things you're working on. It's always an odd scramble, uh, and I kind of feel like that as much as I've felt in you know, seven or eight years because 
Uh, a few big contracts that I've had going for quite some time have all kind of finished up, and I'm not short on money, so I have a bit of time to sort of look around and decide what to do. But I have absolutely no idea what I will do. I'm kind mm -hmm. of waiting to see what happens. Uh, it's been this strange ride with the iPhone where you haven't really had to think a lot about things. There's been a whole lot of people with so many jobs on offer that uh, even if you don't get a really great job, there's something to just keep it going. And I'm looking around thinking, well, there's still little bits and pieces around, but I feel like the world is consolidating a bit. Mm -hmm. uh, projects are being done by larger houses rather than independent consultants, and uh, it's possible I might end up uh, joining some of my friends at a larger company and just doing something a bit more stable for a while. That's very interesting. Um, Why do you think there's been that consolidation over the years? I think it's the standard arc of every new industry. Um, uh, the, I, I remember seeing a, an analysis of the car industry in the uh, 20s, 30s, and 40s mm -hmm. where there were hundreds of car companies in the U.S., and over time, they eventually consolidate down to three or four. Um, mm. uh, as, as things stabilize, then you don't need small, agile companies. And just the size and scale of the bigger players is enough to dominate the industry. And while I don't think there are actual dominating uh, contractors around. I think most people who are looking to get an app developed now are happy to just walk into an established con uh, contracting house and say, "This is my. Uh, can you help me out with this spec?" And they want someone to, you know, walk them through the whole process. They'll pay a lot more than they ever did with an independent developer, but they'll get it done. Mm -hmm. So, I think that's just the way of uh, the way of all industries. They mature and consolidate. How have you approached the design side on your projects? So if a new client comes to you and they have a spec for an app, but they don't have a designer, um, do you do the design work yourself or do you contract that out to a subcontractor? Um, so previously, I have actually uh, either subcontracted or I've worked with uh, teams who have had those resources available, so effectively subcontracting. Um, but recently I haven't actually been involved in a project where, uh, I've accepted that sort of contract. I've sort of said, well, you get it on board. Most of the time, actually what happens is people who are essentially designers go out looking for a developer mm -hmm. and that's the sort of contract I've picked up, which is, um, they're pushing the project forward. They're, they're investing in it, but they are essentially the designer. They've they've put the whole idea together. They've got the workflows. So you take it from there. It's a lot easier in that sense. That makes a lot of sense. Now, I do want to get into some technical topics, especially since you have such a popular technical blog. I'd be remiss not to. Um, so let's talk about Swift a little bit. How sure. has your um, impression of Swift that you had in 2014 maybe evolved over the last three years, if at all? And what was your initial impression back in 2014? My initial impression in 2014 was a little bit one of shock. I, I really hadn't seen Swift coming. I had heard the name 
Swift before. Um, and it's one of those things, going back on it, I've struggled to actually find where I heard about it. Uh, I had heard the name Swift before, but I, I, for some reason, thought it was a scripting language Apple had used. Judging from what Chris Latner has said, actually what it was at Apple was a was part of their um, open GL or open CL um, uh, JIT compiler setup. It was a language they initially set up for that, and so they've hmm. they realized that they were just going to use a much more C plus plus like language for open CL, and they ended up using a was it OpenCL? No, it, was, it might have been Metal. That's right. It was mm-hmm. Metal that they ended up using a very C++-like language for. Mm-hmm. And their more interesting language idea they ended up using as uh, what ended up being a, an Objective-C replacement, which was very surprising to me. I mean, I'd, I'd had misgivings about Objective-C for quite some time. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's one of those things where it's heaps of fun to play around with the messaging system and literally pervert the machinery of the entire language. <laughs> but you realize that as fun as that is, it never serves a useful purpose in a project. There's no good designs that you really build on top of that. And even things like key value observing, which Apple use in their own frameworks, it it's a kind of leaky abstraction. There are some things it does that uh, it probably shouldn't, and it can get in the way of other exercises. So, Objective C was great. It served its purpose, but I'd been wanting something new for a while. But when Swift came out, I still wasn't really ready for it. I uh, spent a lot of time looking at it, going, "Well, how is this going to work? How is this going to work?" I didn't get a chance to actually write a project in Swift until 2015, and when I sat down to do it. It did become clear that there were a number of things in early 2015 that needed to be fixed. And the first one that was so apparent was error handling, which was not in Swift.1, I'm sure you remember. Yep. Uh, and just trying to write uh, what ended up being a sort of really clumsily written monadic error handling just to pass an error from one stage to the next, an error or a success from one stage to the next, ended up being necessary, but just ugly uh and so it was really nice to see error handling come in in version two and then i started paying attention to how much was changing on swift Mm -hmm. with objective c of course objective c came out in 1983 or something originally something like that yeah and apple I think they they added exceptions in 2002 or three, and they added um, the features that were sometimes called Objective-C 2 in about 2005 or 2006. Right. But both of these things were very minor additions. They didn't really change the language that much. So to see Swift change quite dramatically from version to version, both in 2015, 2016, and now in 2017. Mm-hmm. Um, it's It's been quite a ride. <laughs> um, uh, you know, e- even with uh, Swift 4, where they've said, oh, it'll be source compatible. Mm-hmm. Uh, that might be true of the underlying language, but they've been changing the API overlays, which allow you to hook into uh, foundation and UI kit. Yep. So... 
the names you've been using for everything change. There are little types now that remove the objective C-ness of the uh, libraries you're using. And things like Codable, mm-hmm. um, uh, which have come in for doing easy serialization of classes, they sort of change how you think about structure and how you think about um, how you want to organize your app. So I really like Swift um, at every level. They're really working hard to make it a best language, but it's it's also just kind of crazy to hold on to because uh, even aside from syntactic changes and things that break, every time a new feature comes in, it changes how I want to write Swift. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, there's... I think there's still a lot coming in it with the ownership manifesto that they've put out and the plans they have for concurrency. I think there's still a lot to the language that's going to change. So uh, I know there are people out there going, I'm not going to try Swift until it's (laughs) finalized and finished. And I think they're going to be waiting a few years. Yeah, yeah. Uh, If you were Swift czar, what's one thing you would change about the language? Uh, well, you know, you'd go back in time and never introduce file private. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Um, yeah. uh, That's a good It's one. hard to say. I think, I, I really do think that everything that should be fixed is planned to be fixed in the future. Uh, I think they're doing an excellent job in at least keeping track of the things that uh, need need attention. You know, the thing I want the most is actually the ability to precisely control uh, retains and releases and whether or not things get allocated. And a lot of that is theoretically coming in in the ownership model. Mm -hmm. Um, But that's probably Swift 6 at this point. (laughs) Um, There are some things in, you know, there are some things in the concurrency model that I look at and I just, I don't care about. mm -hmm. A lot of people get very excited about async await. Yeah. Um, but this this is something that uh, it just it doesn't have a place in my programming. Okay. So I think it's more something that other people will use. And so there are aspects of Swift that are a bit like that for me, which is there are parts of it that I don't care about, and mm-hmm. provided they stay out of my way, I don't you know I will continue to not care. <laughs> and it's a big enough language in some ways similar to C where you cannot use some of the features, and that's okay. Yeah, absolutely. So I want to talk about a couple of your blog posts from the last year, just a couple that I picked out that I thought were kind of interesting. Um, First, a fun one, and then we'll go to a more serious one. But um, there was this post that also was pretty popular in Hacker News that you wrote about porting an app from Mac OS 8 to to Sierra. So tell the audience a little bit about that experience and um, what was so, so fun about that. When I was at university, I, I did all of my programming on um, the Solaris machines that our university ran. Hmm. Uh, but on the side, I bought a copy of Power Plant, and I was running that on uh, on a Power Mac. So Power Plant was an old C++ IDE written by a company called MetroWorks, mm-hmm. which were eventually bought up by Motorola, who used it for PowerPC development and then ran it into the ground or something. Actually, I think the remnants of it are still used by Freescale, which is what Motorola's spun off their chip division into. Right. In any case, um, PowerPlant was 
an amazing IDE for the time. And even now, I, I look at the screenshots of it, and I think, you know, it, it had some features of its IDE that uh, didn't quite get picked up by Xcode, even though you can see um, between Project Builder, which was the first name for Xcode, and later versions of Xcode, you can see that Xcode has tried to adopt some of the things that PowerPlant had. Uh, for clarification, I think uh, PowerPlant was the app framework. Code Warrior was the was the eyed, right? Oh, sorry, that's okay. You're right? Yeah, <laughs> mixing names up in my head. Um, you're right. Code Warrior is what I should be saying. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, Code Warrior was uh, it was just an amazing IDE because I'd I'd used Earlier IDEs, I was using um, Think C um, earlier on the Mac and uh, various constructs around Emacs on uh, Solaris that was sort of IDE-like. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Code Warrior was just, it just seemed like everything worked, uh, which was very hard in the old Mac OS 8 days when uh, things would crash and bring down your whole computer. PowerPlant had these little tricks for actually preventing the whole computer falling over, which was always nice. Mm-hmm. Um, and it came in this wonderful industrial-themed packaging. It looked like, um, you know, sort of black and gold stripes like the barriers around a construction site. And in fact, it even looked like it had construction tape on it. So it was this big industrial <laughs> box you sit on your desk and you really felt like you were going to build something. So I had so much fun in those days. I never wrote anything useful with it. It's one of those things I look back. I, I programmed all the way through my teens and yet somehow never managed to build anything. <laughs> I, I'm not sure how that happens. You just you don't have it in your head how much work a whole project's going to be. So you play around with something and as soon as you've got a hello world up on screen, you go, ah, I'm done. Uh, but I wrote this... Uh, Minesweeper clone, just because it's not that hard and uh, uh, get something up there. Mm-hmm. And I didn't really do anything with it, again, as I did with all of my projects in that era, and I just left it there. And I, I've been looking around at old programs recently, uh, not to tip my hat too far on where I'm going with articles on Cocoa with Love, but I'm going to be looking at application design patterns and how they've changed over time. Mm-hmm. And as part of that, I decided to dig up some of the oldest code I could find that I'd written and try and dig up some code that other people had written in the 90s and see what apps used to look like before Model View Controller. Uh, right, and that's a great segue because that's the other blog post I wanted to talk about. Was you wrote this other one on uh, looking at Model View Controller, and you kind of went into its history. Model View Controller is just this weird kind of name. It doesn't doesn't have a consistent meaning from platform to platform. Ultimately, what it means under the hood is just keep your model and your view separate. The implementation of that is very different on each platform. Um, but I was looking back before people did Model View Controller. They just uh, integrated everything. And the classic Mac approach for writing an app was just your window owned the app, mm-hmm. which is, it seems strange to people now. They go, oh, you shouldn't do that. But that's how it was done. And in fact, it's sort of been cemented on Windows, the operating system, because 
the window always owns the app and you close it and the whole app is gone. So why not tie all your resources to the window? It's one of those things where even though people broke all of the rules that we now say you're supposed to follow, uh, they made their apps work. They made them tidy. You can, um, you can decompose and structure your app in all kinds of different ways. And we now say model, uh, separated model and view is the best approach. And it probably is. But it's not this kind of unbreakable rule that uh, it's sometimes held to be. I, the reason why I wanted to go back and look at it is everyone I talk to treats model view controller like this, kind of like a, an axiom. Mm-hmm. In mathematics, mathematics is built on the concept of axioms, which are rules that can't be proved. They can't be uh, broken down into smaller pieces. So you just kind of assume they're true and move on. Uh, and people treat model view controller a bit that way, but it's not. You can break it apart and you can do things other ways. You can look at it from another perspective. And so that's what I was trying to do with all of that. And then bringing the whole project, you know, bringing that um, uh, Code Warrior power plant project to the Mac turned out to not be too hard. I managed to get it running again, uh, mostly because there was a version of power plant. So this is... PowerPlant, not mm-hmm. Code Warrior. <laughs> PowerPlant was the application framework, and the application framework was kept running for a while, and there was a version of it that was put out in 2005, which was recent enough that I could get my Minesweeper version running in the 2005 version, and I could get the 2005 version of PowerPlant running on a modern Mac. I had to do it under the iOS uh, sorry, the Mac OS 10.6 SDK. Okay. That turned out to be the only slightly hacky aspect of it. So I had to actually, because 10.6 SDK doesn't ship anymore, I had to pull it out of an old version of Xcode. But that's not too hard to do. I'm sure a lot of people have done that before. But as for that whole article, I got a bit goofy talking about uh, bits of nostalgia from the 90s and how I used to access the internet in the early 1990s. <laughs> and we'll put a link to it in the show notes uh, so people can check it out. But, so you're saying model view controller, of course, is just one of multiple paradigms. Um, where do you see the iOS and Mac world going? Do you see model view controller continuing to dominate or is something more like reactive programming going to take over in your opinion? Well, uh, like I said, I think uh, separated model and view is probably going to hang around. And I think that's the important aspect of it. I don't think controllers are as important as they've become. I think something is going to happen to controllers. And I think we're going to end up rethinking the role that they play. Uh, There's an aspect of it, though, where people are going to need to demonstrate this to Apple. And Apple are going to need to change some of the core controller classes to work a little better under a different paradigm. Um, What I'm hoping is that Apple will allow things like table views... Instead of having them uh, require a delegate to provide them all their data, and the delegate acts at the uh, beck and call of the table view itself, instead, you know, it would be nice to feed the table view a stream of data of things like added row, removed row, moved this row to here, and the table view just deal with that internally. Mm -hmm. So it's a kind of changing things from the table view sits over you and you have to write a delegate that serves it 
to the entire table view is just serving a stream of commands you're giving it. And I think that's going to require um, some changes on Apple's part. But I think once that's done, I think it will open up some different approaches because people have been trying to do things a bit more declarative, a bit uh, with a bit less hidden state. Mm-hmm. Uh, functional programmers will tell you that all state is bad, but uh, a more pragmatic approach, I think, is that hidden state is bad. And some of these views, like uh, the, the bigger controllers Apple have, like the navigation controller, has its navigation stack. Mm-hmm. And you could go, well, it's it's not hidden. You can access its list of view controllers. But I think the reality is it is kind of hidden because if you hit the back button on a navigation controller, it will change that stack before it tells you. And so if you're trying to say, well, navigation controller, you obey my commands, it's going and issuing commands to itself. And the best you can do is catch up with it later. I would like to see these sorts of classes change so that they never do that sort of thing. (laughs) It's okay to have your own internal state for caching reasons, Mm -hmm. but changing um, user-facing state without letting the rest of the program know first is, I think it's bad behavior. I think it encourages hidden, untestable, opaque state, which is just all kinds of wrong. Yeah, that that actually makes a lot of sense. Um, Any quick takes, since we're recording the day after it, on the Apple event yesterday and what the iPhone X might mean for developers? Well, I I tweeted yesterday that uh, suddenly now I'm stuck updating an an app that was originally written for iOS 4 (laughs) and is full of manual layout so that everything can dance around a notch and (laughs) a rounded corners and a home indicator. I'm not... Uh, uh, I'm not totally happy with the amount of work Apple is thrusting onto developers with that. Yeah. Um, I, there are ways they could have made that a bit easier. I think they've decided to say, well, look, all of this space is here and it's yours to do with what you want. And that's great, but uh, some of these things are nicer if they're opt-in rather than opt-out. Yeah, yeah. They, they have that tendency to just kind of force things on developers. Um, so I think that's going to provide a lot of busy work. And I think uh, people... Are, I was originally looking at it because the easiest way is just to inset your whole app by the safe area. Right. Uh, which works, but it makes it look like you're not really extending out to the borders of the screen. So, I, I mean, I get what Apple want you to do, which is they want it to look like the app goes to the edge of the screen, but the interactable areas within the safe area. And that requires a bit of design separation, which uh, it's it's not that it's a huge amount of work. It's just work I wasn't planning on doing. So, Which is the worst kind of work. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, how can listeners get in touch with you? You know, it's uh, I, I'm on Twitter, at Coco with Love. If you really need to contact me, I have an email address at the bottom of my website, so, CocoWithLove.com, and uh, I'm there at the bottom. Matt, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. Do you have any parting advice for other consultants listening? You know, if, if you're not happy with your job at a big company, uh, it is okay to just quit and see <laughs> if you can make a go of things. Uh, 
you know, I didn't really have a plan when I started being an independent developer. I just wasn't happy with the job I had and left. And uh, if you work hard and you keep uh, going around to people you know who have established companies and asking if asking them if they have a little bit of work, you can uh, you can get started without too much planning, without too much effort behind it. Um, it's it's nice, I think, to always know you have that freedom. People mm-hmm. feel like they're stuck in a job and they can't leave this job because they'll be unemployed. Well, okay, but uh, you know, it, ten thousand dollars in the bank can last longer than you'd think it might. Hmm. That does sound like uh, some very valuable advice to a lot of the wannabe independent contractors that are listening. Matt, thank you so much for coming on the show. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you enjoy the show, leave us a review on iTunes. Let people know it's a good show. Recommend us on Overcast. Recommend us on your podcast player of choice. Don't forget to check out classic computer science problems in Swift on manning.com. Promo code PCCOPEC, P-C-K-O-P-E-C. will get you 50% off on manning.com on classic computer science problems in Swift. And I love to hear from you. Reach out to me on Twitter. Tell me what you like about Consult, what you don't like about Consult. Dave Kopek, D-A-V-E-K-O-P-E-C. That's my Twitter handle. Until next time.